All right. Well, I should kick us off because I know that we have miles to travel. I am Will Fenton. I'm the director of research and public programs at the Library Company of Philadelphia. I suspect that just about everybody knows us, but we are a research library. We were originally founded by Benjamin Franklin as the first subscription lending library. And we've changed a bit over the past almost 300 years. Now we are uh, really invested in supporting scholarly research. So we have this fantastic fellowship program. Most of our speakers, including the one tonight, uh, were research fellows. I was a research fellow. It's um, often formative for whatever project you're working on, whether it's a, uh, a book, an article, a dissertation. So I encourage you, if you're at the beginning of your scholarly career, or if you're in the middle of one, you know, like, think about applying for one, because we have pre-docs and post-docs, and we give out quite a few for an institution our size. So with that, I think I've hit all my uh, major points there. We have a special guest today. Dr. Seth Perry is Associate Professor of Religion in America at Princeton University. His first book, Bible Culture and Authority in the Early United States from Princeton University Press 2018, it's pretty recent, explores the performative, rhetorical, and material aspects of Bible-based authority in early national America. His work has appeared in Church History, Early American Studies, the Journal of American Academy of Religion, the Journal of Scholarly Publishing, the Chronicle of Higher Education, Sightings, and the Los Angeles Review of Books. You're a busy gentleman. Current projects include a biography of Lorenzo Dow, the early national period's most infamous itinerant preacher, who we'll be hearing about today, <laughs> an article on scriptural failure, and a project on animals in early American religious history. Dr. Perry was a McNeil Center for Early American Studies Fellow at the Library Company in 2011. Welcome, Seth. Thanks very much, Will. My notes are telling me, reminding me, not that I need to be reminded, um, to, to thank Will for, for putting this together. And um, thanks so much to the Library Company, both for this opportunity. Um, it's a real honor to, uh, uh, to be a part of the, the Fireside Chat series, um, but also for all the research support over the years. Um, uh, a good part of this talk is going to be a, a real uh, you know, um, advertisement for the the, the, the value of the of the library company um, uh, not just as, as will said for um, for my, my first project but it's really um, uh, the inspiration through the resources to the sources there that uh, toward the second project so I came came to the idea of the second project um, through things I encountered um, during research at the, at the library company the first time um, so uh, today I'm going to talk about um, America's first celebrity preacher um, uh, and his his art of of talking about himself. Um, the first thing to say is that America's first celebrity preacher um, is not going to be George Whitfield. Um, in my in my telling, at least, if you came here expecting a talk about George Whitfield, who was a perfectly good candidate for the first uh, uh, celebrity preacher in American history uh, as an 18th century itinerant, who's incredibly famous um, and, and traveled widely. Um, uh, you'd be you, you'd be validated in expecting that, but that's not what you're going to get. Um, uh, the the preacher I am interested in um, uh, models himself quite a bit on Whitfield, um, uh, but comes uh, later. Um, so uh, Lorenzo Dow, let's call him the first celebrity preacher of the United States, right? So post-revolution, um, uh, Dow um, uh, begins preaching in 96, 1796, um, and he takes on this itinerant style, which will be very important to uh, the early 19th century for a variety of, of denominations. Um, uh, and he becomes, I think, it's, I think I can get away with saying it. No one has completely contradicted me yet, but I, I'm open to, to debates. 
Um, he becomes, I, I think, the most famous man in America for those first three decades of the 19th century who's not like a politician or a military leader or a military leader come politician. Um, he is self-made. Um, he is um, he, he, he's actually not even attached explicitly to any particular denomination. So an itinerant preacher of this era um, would have support from the denomination and would be traveling around according to their, their rules and, and with a modicum of financial support. Um, Dow declines to do that. So he is um, entirely just himself, which I think makes him a true kind of media celebrity. Um, I'm gonna talk about, about all the aspects of that um, in a way that we can really recognize today. So think of him as something like a Kardashian, right? Where he's a person who becomes famous for being famous, for being himself. Um, and that's a that's a thing. Um, so here's a here's a young Dao uh, and an old Dao. Um, I like to use these two as, uh, as to juxtapose them. Um, Dao um, uh, starts out attempting. He's very persuaded and he's he's converted um, under the preaching of Methodists, um, and he thinks of himself as sort of a a parallel Methodist, probably for his career, um, except that he cannot accept Methodist hierarchy. So what being a Methodist means to him is he's attached to the theology of John Wesley. Um, he um, believes in an Arminian sort of scheme of salvation, which means that um, individuals have the ability to choose to accept salvation um, and to decline it, right? Um, and he believes in a certain kind of um, moral living, which I tend to characterize as someone who enjoys um, card playing and beer. Uh, I tend to characterize uh, this early Methodism as being just against fun. Um, so he's against uh, all those things that would be um, uh, social um, in that kind of era. That's not really fair, but it'll, it'll, it'll do for now. Um, what, uh, what Dow becomes famous for, the way that he becomes famous, is because he doesn't accept Methodist um, uh, rules. So the Methodist itineracy system would mean that you had to attach yourself to a circuit. Um, and so you get a tiny little geographical area, depending on where you are, it could be bigger or smaller. And you spend your time going around to the, to the towns on that circuit and preaching. Dow thinks that he is called by God to go wherever God tells him to go. So no Methodist bishop is going to tell him where he needs to go preach. Um, he's going to go where the spirit tells him to go. And so that's is why he can't be ordained as a, as a, as a Methodist minister. He, um, he wants to go wherever he wants to, and they won't put up with that. Um, so what this means <coughs> is that uh, he ends up traveling everywhere, right? And this is how he becomes or one of the ways in which one of the aspects of his fame he literally puts his body, and you have to think about this in, in early 19th century terms, there's no communication um, of pictures or sound over distance, right? There's only his body, right? Uh, he puts his body in front of more eyeballs than anyone else in this era, and that just has to be true, uh, any other American in this era. Um, so this is uh, a map, I hope you can, you can see underneath of this, uh, the, the bright lines is a, a, a period map um, uh, of, of the early United States. These are just his travels for 1803, 04, and 05. They had a really wonderful research assistant um, uh, who worked on drawing out the details um, of Dow's travels um, during, um, during these years out of his journal and plotted them on a map. Um, and so what you get is this, this beautiful sort of um, visualization of what that looked like to travel that much. And again, this is over, um, you know, uh, bad roads in bad conditions in the early 19th century. This is an incredible amount of travel for one person during this era. That green line shooting off the side there is him going to Ireland for the second time. Uh, he goes to the UK uh, 
about three times. Um, just a, a quick note I like to use for um, for just how famous he was. Um, uh, there's a, he tells a story of being in Georgia in, in the, I think it's four or five, oh, four or five. Like he's in Georgia at night being chased by a dog. Um, it's the kind of thing that happens to you if you're in a tenant on the road. Um, and, uh, the, the farmer, the owner of the dog hears him yelling, you know, again, shooing the dog away. Um, hears him yelling and recognizes his voice. He recognizes the voice of this man who, um, is from Connecticut, right? Who's not a native, who's not from his local area, um, who has no reason to really be there. But the voice of Lorenzo Dow is famous enough, even in this, or this early stage of his career, that someone from, someone could recognize it, right? Without having heard it, you know, recorded, obviously. So, um, the other thing that everyone knows about Dow, if you know anything about Lorenzo Dow, um, is that his name becomes incredibly common. Um, people name their children for him, which is a sign of, Either a sign you just really like the name, or a sign that uh, that you were you were into what he was selling, right? Um, and this is just a quick. This take this took like you know thirty seconds on uh, um, find a grave. Um, these are just graves of people with his name, right? So you get you get Lorenzo Dow Smith the way you would get like George Washington something, right? Um, uh, I think I can. Well, I know for a fact I can say that um, m more than one person on either side at Gettysburg died um, who had his name so like a lorenzo dow something more than one i'm, I'm pretty definitely at least at least one um, on either side of gettysburg so that's not just um, the extent of the stadium in terms of like just numbers of people but also geographic distance right both um, both people in the united states and people in the confederacy um, named or naming their children um, for uh, for dow um, and you can go through a list of like famous or famous adjacent people who, who had Lorenzo Dow's name. Brigham Young had a brother named Lorenzo Dow. Um, Lorenzo Dow Blackson um, was a famous member of the African Union Church who wrote an extended um, allegory um, of African-American experience um, uh, future. Um, Lorenzo Dow Baker um, was a founder of United Fruit who brought in uh, bananas um, into, into the United States. So uh, his name kind of echoes um, uh, through the 19th century. Um, the, 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 so in addition to just sort of being present in so many places um, as a way of cultivating his fame, what made him famous was a lot less his message, which is something like repent, um, you know, uh, choose grace. God is working with you. Be afraid of death, which is which is a pretty standard kind of message in this in this moment. Um, be afraid of death. Make yourself ready for that inevitability. Right. It could happen at any time. You had a real habit of preaching on that. Um, uh, but in addition to the, the the content and the extent of where he did it, it's it's the way that he did it, right? So Dow is known as sort of the emblematic, fiery preacher, and it's not just a kind of like fire and brimstone um, that we sort of like stereotype these days. That sort of image of fire and brimstone is is really um, influenced in so many ways by by 20th century media. So you have radio preachers and, and television preachers, right? So what we mean when we say that is something. Um, uh, that's very particular to, I think, um, our own media era. If we try and think back on how you became that kind of distinctive or, or the kind of way that you that you preached um, in a fiery uh, a fiery sermon, before that, um, we sort of have to read between the lines and sort of get into the way Dow described himself, but um, or the way that people described him, uh, his performances. It's not just that he was uh, he was um, uh, fire and brimstone. It's that he was uh, man antic, right, um, on the stage. People described him as clownish, and he dressed um, 
uh, in pretty pr ridiculous ways. He walked into the Green River New York meeting house in the spring of 1799 wearing a borrowed coat and two hats. Why two hats? Because then people will talk about it, right? Like that's, that's the whole that's the whole idea of what he's doing here. I'm going to get into that. Um, this is a late um, uh, you know, engraving woodcut. I'm not, I don't know about the, the, the medium of, of creating this. Um, uh, but an illustration, a late illustration of Dallas is posthumous, but by someone who did hear him preach at some point, look at those eyes, right? Like that's what you're, that's the image of Lorenzo Dow, right? Is this, um, uh, and that kind of like, um, again, uh, crazy kind of attitude. Um, uh, he got the, um, the, the response that he was looking for in as much as what he's looking for is, um, is attention, right? Um, the singular, uh, this is a newspaper clipping from, uh, from, uh, 1823. Um, uh, the style of his oratory, I'm halfway down there, the style of his oratory is as singular as the matter of his discourses and his personal appearance and all defy description. Um, so he's, he gets this kind of attention. Now, the, the subject of the discourse is that I've said his religious message is really just um, repent, be afraid of death, um, uh, prepare yourself um, for, the, for the justice of God. Um, but the, the, the other things that he talked about all the time, the, the way that he wove, I like to say that he wove um, that message on kind of a, on a lattice, right? On a lattice of autobiography, right? So the, 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 the account, the content of his preaching, that, which he's delivering during all of, all, in all of these places, the content becomes himself, right? It becomes the traveling itself, actually, right? So the more he travels, the more he has stories to tell about traveling, right? Um, and so that um, constant iterative, um, reiterative, um, uh, talking about himself, right? And that's the second part of, of my title today. And that's the, the real, um, the, the place I want this, this book to go um, uh, is, is thinking about how it is that he talks about himself and makes that work, right? Uh, and, and makes that into a message, right? Um, and the, the part I'm not going to get into as fully today, but I will actually kind of end here, but I want to, I want to flag it now, is that if we think about in the early 19th century, what it means to do that, what it means to travel wherever you want to go um, and talk to whoever you want to bring together or can get to listen to you, right? In whatever style you want, right? He made a habit of, uh, he would go into towns and if he felt people were too cold toward him, like they didn't come out to the, to the, to the, to the sermon, um, he would do things like, wish that something bad would happen in the town so that they would learn a lesson, right? So that they will pay attention to God next time. He did crazy things like that in order to get this kind of, um, this kind of response. If we think about in, the, in terms of, of, of the early 19th century, who gets to do that? Who does that, right? Um, then the, the, the big part of the, of the way the, the book is developing is to talk about what it means to have this performance of, of white maleness, right? In this moment, um, because it's, it's white men in this era in particular, um, in the early 19th century, who have that kind of radical liberty and freedom, right? So this is going to be all part of his, of his message and part of his presence um, and his public performance. And so that's the part I really want to, um, want to think about for the way that the book is going. Um, the, the thing I'm going to focus on more today is just sort of the content of how it is that he narrates himself um, and what that, what that looks like. So the meaning of it will be something we kind of end on. But, um, so this is, uh, so the first way he does is A, in those, in those sermons, as I've said, he's constantly telling you about himself. Um, uh, but um, the, the, the primary way and the way that he reaches most 
um, of his public, I would say, um, are through his autobiographies and his other publications. Um, this is the earliest example I found of um, the earliest mention of, of one of his autobiographies. So this is from early 1804, um, a proposal for, or mid-1804, um, proposals for printing um, the life and travels of Lorenzo Dow. Um, so he's going to go ahead. He's 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 planning um, on this happening. He ends up not using that publisher, which I think is an interesting story. I don't know the answer. I don't know why that is yet. But the the publisher who advertises this um, uh, proposal isn't the one who actually gets the job. So I don't know what happened there. Um, uh, this is just a random sampling of um, suggested or selected individual Dow publications. Um, the thing to to know is that. His entire message is autobiographical. His entire message is talking about himself, even the things that are polemical tracks, right? So it's not as if he is only making arguments when he's making arguments. What he does is make arguments out of autobiography. I have a little example of that um, in a minute. One thing I do want to mention, so, I mean, it would be, it's easy in some ways to say, and many scholars have done this, and it is, it's true, that this is an era in the, that early national period. This is an era of self-creation. This is an era when people are telling stories, right? Um, uh, Benjamin Franklin's um, uh, autobiography, right? All of these types of things that people are, are doing uh, in terms of like telling the story of yourself, right? Um, uh, it also has long-standing Christian um, uh, 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 patterns, right? That this is what it is to be a Christian in some sense is to convey outwardly to other people something that has happened inwardly, right? Or something about yourself. And so this requires a certain kind of narration of the self. Right. And that's how I want to tie him into into a longer background. Um, this is just a, uh, it's easy to pick an example. I mean, a lot of the New Testament is uh, the genres of the New Testament are epistolary. Right. Um, most many. Um, and so here we just have Paul. He's just he's just telling you about himself because that's what you do in a letter. Right. And these are the models that um, uh, the Dow is, is drawing on. Um, Augustine's confessions. Right. Are, are, uh, when I was in school, I was told these were the. Um, the, the, the first autobiography, I don't think that's, I think there's some classicists who would probably argue with that. Um, but uh, the, the idea of, of relating your experiences with God um, for others, right, as, as Augustine does, as Paul does, is a, is a thing with, with a, a longstanding um, uh, presence. Um, confession as a sacrament, right, um, uh, in the medieval church. I love this one. This is uh, from a um, medieval manuscript. This is not my era, so I, I, frankly, I, I picked this off of a really, really great article. Um, uh, but you see what I, I love about this one, that what it, like, it looks like the, um, the confessor is like covering his face, so I don't know what it is that's being confessed, but he's, he's, he's uh, worried about it. Um, but this whole idea, what are you doing there? Like you're telling a story about yourself, right? Um, to someone else, and that's, that's the thing that, um, that is just part of it. Uh, the Reformation, the leaders of the Reformation, Martin Luther hated penance um, with particular hatred um, uh, as, a, as a sacrament uh, because of the ecclesi ecclesiastical power of the, of the church itself that it represented, but also because it held the priest, the confessor, as an intermediary, a mediary between, uh, between the soul and, and God, and he didn't think that you needed that, you needed that right? Um, so, you know, the Reformation, the um, uh, magisterial Reformation, moves to um, to eliminate penance. However, um, uh, less than a hundred years um, after Luther's death, the, um, the, the, the Protestants who think of themselves as the greatest heirs um, of, uh, of the Reformation, um, for, for, for our perspective as historians, at least um, in America, um, New England Puritans, 
um, resurrect a form of confession as the the conversion narrative that you give to gain full membership into a church. And so here, this is just an example um, from the great collection of those um, uh, those accounts, um, where what you have to do in order to show yourself a, a, a worthy member of the elect that you can you can be a member of the church. Um, is stand in front of a room and uh, tell uh, a story about yourself, right? So all of these things kind of work together, right? Or, or pattern, or part of a pattern of self-narration that I think is just in there. And I think I said in the title, I said, uh, uh, it's not as uh, uh, perfect in the art of, of Protestant self-narration. Obviously, I'm, uh, I, with the um, with, with confession as a as a sacrament um, in the Catholic Church, I don't, I don't think you have to limit it to Protestants. It just seems like putting Christian in there just seemed too bold for for one title. But uh, but I, I would I would defend that. Um, so in any case, um, that self narration is, is a thing, right? And so what I really want to do, and the stakes of this just kind of sidebar, and this is kind of inside baseball for my world in religious studies. Um, uh, it, but but it's certainly relevant within within the historical work, historiographical work that I interface with. I think there's an awful lot given away um, to religious experience in scholarship still. Um, and I think that we do that where we will say so-and-so this happened, like we if we were writing a, a, an article or something about Joanna Sillier, we would say that these things happened to her in a tone or in a, in a mode that doesn't interrogate the fact that she's telling a story for someone else, right? There are There is actually great work on these in particular that talks about how there are generic um, uh, expectations for these kinds of conversion narratives. Um, but I think there are also places where we don't do that. And we don't do that because, again, this is the sidebar, um, we don't do that because there is a longstanding history in, I think, Christian thought, um, where we don't want experience to be constructed in words. We want it to only be reported, right? So the idea is that experience is only reported, not presented, right? And that's that's just not true, right? Uh, anytime you're talking to someone else about literally anything, you are talking to that person, right? You're, you're telling a story that, that um, you are constructing for them, right? Doesn't, this is in no way has anything to do with its truth or legitimacy or facticity. Um, it only has to do with the genre and the presentation of it, right? And the wonderful thing that I think Lorenzo Dow does for, um, for the work in my field, uh, for the things I wanna see happen in, in my corner of, of religious studies and my corner of history, is that Dow demands that we pay attention to um, his rhetorical construction of his experience because it's just so central to what he does. And it's the thing that people latch onto. The stories he tells about himself and the way that he constructs them are the things that matter and you can't escape it, right? And so confronting how you think about that with respect to his project um, has been really generative for me. And I'm hoping that the book itself will someday um, be generative for, for other work in this field. So. Um, just to, to, to touch on some of the, um, the places where he does this and the ways that he does this. Um, so this is the library company's um, wonderful copy of his first major polemical publication. Um, and as you can see um, here, it, it again, eventually he cuts the, he moves this elsewhere, but the rest of the autobiographical bits of this polemical piece um, stay here. But here he's, he's gonna make an argument about how Calvinism, which he hates, leads to atheism. Uh, like many of his arguments, it's kind of logical sometimes and kind of complicated to follow other times. Um, but that's where he's going. Where does he start? When he was born, right? He starts with the story of himself and how he worked his way into feeling that way. He, he goes through the experience of having felt um, that 
he, he, had been, he was raised on Calvinism um, and then realized that it turned him into an atheist and he had to like bounce back from that. So um, uh, the other ways that he recounts this, this is from elsewhere in the in his first autobiography. Um, this line stays throughout all the editions of this autobiography, um, where he's constantly telling you how what a stranger he is. I am now going to a strange land to be a stranger among strangers, and what is before me I know not. Right now, that is for all I have any way of knowing. Right, um, that's a legitimate feeling that he felt. This is as he's feeling. This is what he's thinking as he's going to Ireland for the first time. Um, and he's, you know, he's a farm boy from Connecticut. And he's about to jump off the map, as far as he, as far as he knows. Um, and so he's, he's, but, but what we're getting, right, in the mediated story of it, right, is him telling us that, right. And I know from accounts of his preaching that he also preached on it, right. His own, like, I am the wandering, I am the wandering preacher, suffering for you. I am a stranger wherever I go, right. This is more of that to come. Um, uh, here again, why am I, what am I wandering up and down the earth for? Like a speckled bird among the birds of the forest. What is before me? I'm not, not trial that you've been in. Um, the, bird, the speckled bird among the birds of the forest is from Jeremiah 12, 9. That was one of his favorite ways of talking about himself, where the speckled bird um, looks different from the others and therefore is attacked uh, for them. The bird is solitary. The bird is alone. Um, this one, um, so here, he, he's just, here he's in, this is in the course that he just described in his, um, uh, his the, the growth of his um, preaching success. Um, Pittstown is one of the places where he first has a lot of a lot of great success. Um, uh, the first place I tried um, this is when he's still trying to be on the Methodist circuit. Um, uh, this I did here for several days successfully and it caused a great deal of talk. Some said I was crazy, and then and remember we're reading this in his journal. From this here, I was first distinguished by the name Crazy Dow. Right, so people did call him that kind of because he called himself that, right? Like that he's telling the story of his craziness in order to build a certain kind of character, right? Um, and that's, um, uh, that's how that uh, develop, develops. Uh, readers ate it up. Um, so um, there's no end of the, the I, there are at least 200, I wanna say, and that's just a, a low ballpark, um, 200 different editions or different impressions, printings of his, um, of his works during his lifetime, um, just during his lifetime. Um, the number that I've seen that have marginalia and like readers' attention is all very good. People like, people got into it, right? They got into reading the story of him, right? Um, this was one of the more famous ones from the, the sort of, I don't know, two thirds mark of his career. Um, in 1820, Dow was uh, arrested for libel um, in Charleston, South Carolina for something he had written many years before where he said that a fellow preacher had probably died drunk based on no evidence really. Um, uh, but he, he, he stuck by it. Um, the, here he's, he's arrested, um, tried for libel. And so what does he do? He publishes an account of the tribe of the trial account, the time is time in jail. Of course, his refutation of the, um, of the allegations. Um, and this one, and this is one of the library company's um, great things. If you spend any time around the library company, you probably know, have heard the name Matthew Carey. Um, uh, Matthew Carey is a sort of pillar of, of um, uh, Philadelphia Catholicism. Um, uh, I have absolutely no idea what Carey thought of this. Uh, late in his life, Dow goes down, it's, it's present earlier too, definitely by 22. Um, uh, later in his life, Dow goes down a very dark anti-Catholic road. Um, it's completely possible to see a through line between um, his um, uh, his writings and the kinds of sentiments that are being publicly expressed um, on a wider level in the 1840s. Um, Will and I were just talking about that. Um, 
So I, I, I have no idea what Matthew Carey would have thought of this. I would love to find out that there's some record in the in the Carey um, diaries and journals and things, records that we have at the, at the library company. Um, uh, so anyway, this, here's, but here's an example of, of this, you know, having definitely been, been owned by someone we can name. Here, uh, Dow is translated into German. Um, the library company is the only place I've ever seen one of these. Um, uh, this is 36, this is after his death. This is a, a translation of his, that polemical tract, again, the one that's about um, how Calvinism leads to, to atheism. Um, here, um, and this is where we get to, um, I'm gonna uh, arc toward, uh, toward wrapping up around the question of, um, around the questions raised by um, the most common name he gave himself. Um, so like many great self-promoters, um, he made a, Dow made a habit of referring to himself in third person. Um, and he gave himself nicknames and then sort of, sort of uh, eccentric eponyms is what, I, what I've called them. Cosmopolite was his favorite, and it's the one that stuck the longest. Um, this publication, Cosmopolite Interrogated, um, is a dialogue between Curious and Singular. So it's like Curious is like, who is this crazy person? And Singular, who is Dao, what are both Dao? But Singular is Cosmopolite. And singular is answering all these questions. So it's it's just, this is an entire pamphlet that's only about himself, promotional of himself, right? Um, it's like, people are curious about me, aren't they? And they will be if I, you know, keep publishing these pamphlets about how they're curious about me. Um, but the, the the word I'm interested in here is is, is cosmopolite. Um, what he means, um, so here he's using it again, so, uh, um, as he's traveling through the age of wonders, traveling through the new world. Uh, is setting up that that that, that dialogue. Um, but what I'm interested in here is is, is Cosmopolite is using as it, in the notion that he is he's a traveler um, without a home. So Samuel Johnson's contemporary early-ish um, uh, definition of a cosmopolite is one who is at home, one who is at home in every place. But Dow is using it in the sense that he's at home nowhere, right? Stuckle bird is always is, is never at home. Um, but what he, but what's interesting is that he's coming out of people who came of age in the 1790s, as Dow did, um, had an awkward, complicated relationship with the notion of cosmopolitanism, um, which is in the sense that it was associated with radical politics. Uh, Seth Kotler's um, Tom Paine's America is, is, is the book for, for, to read on this. So it was associated with like Tom Paine. Dow has sympathies with Paine, um, but definitely not religious ones, but, but political ones. Um, so the, but that word itself, um, and the way it hangs around for him, he defines it more explicitly in this publication, which as far as I know, this printing of it, some of the text shows up in other places, but this printing of it exists in exactly one copy that I've ever seen. Um, uh, and he calls it the Yankee spy. And so it's him talking, um, uh, to, um, it's printed in Nashville. So it's him knowing that he um, is, is read as a northerner. Um, something I dwell on longer in the, in the book is that as, a, uh, as a Connecticut Yankee. Um, and you can see from the way people talk about his preaching, but also in the letters that he writes, the way he spells, um, he has a distinct um, Yankee accent. So when he goes to Nashville, people know, right? Um, and also by this point, he's famous. They know who he is. Um, so he's talking, he's publishing as, as the, as the Yankee spy and this publication, um, which is a, um, uh, where it says embracing the rights of man, natural, social, moral philosophy, embracing the rights of man. What he means is, is actually, um, uh, he, he takes a lot of text from Thomas Paine's rights of man, republishes it, um, in this, um, without quotation marks, but it's, it's the early 19th century plagiarism is sort of a hard thing to find. 
um, uh, but he's doing a certain kind of thing about the natural rights of human beings, right? And he's publishing it in Nashville, right? Um, in 1811, 1830. Um, and so here he defines the cosmopolite. He defines that figure. And this is during the war of 1812. Um, so when he, when he says the present war, that's what he means. The present war embraces one question which no ancient or former war ever did, whether by the creator's law of nature, man is born a cosmopolite or the local property of another, and perhaps its effects in the um, A cosmopolite is a man who is not owned, right? And so that, that, that the place where the book has gone, and I did not see it going when I started thinking about Tao, um, is to think about his performance of, of whiteness, his performance of um, being a free man, right, um, in this era, and how, that, and how that works. Now, the other thing to say um, is that Dow was extraordinarily popular among African-American congregations. He preached to mixed race congregation, which is not a given in this period. Um, but if you think, and, uh, and there are many, many men um, uh, who are African-American men who are named for him. There are many Lorenzo Dow's um, who we know were African-American. So that kind of way that he crosses that line, right, or, or is able to preach to all of those congregations, think back to the map, right, of all those places that he went, you don't travel that deeply and that persistently in the South um, by being vocal about the fact that you're against slavery. He is in fact against slavery. Um, uh, and he's, he's, he's upfront about that in this publication and a couple other places. He tends to associate slavery with um, a class problem. So he'll say things like he compares America, the, the enslaved in America to the poor in London when he goes to the UK. And, and he'll say that, you know, he will say things like, if I could choose to, if I had to choose to be one or the other, I would rather be enslaved in America, provided I could choose my master. It's of course not how it works. Um, because then I could get something to eat. So he thinks the American enslaved are sometimes better off than the poor he sees in the UK. So while he would be anti, he's against slavery. He also inhabits this, you know, a place that today that, you know, we can't look directly at. Um, but what he um, what he does here, right, in defining himself as the cosmopolite in the way that he crosses these lines, and in his performance of um, of, of freedom, is that he um, he can be all things to all people, right, in that way, in the way that he um, he travels that extensively in the South without drawing the ire um, of, of slave owners. And I know this, and this is brand new because I have um, another wonderful research assistant um, this summer um, who is doing work on the only place where I have a chance to see exactly who read and was interested in Dow um, is so this is an, uh, an earlier printing of that same rights of man publication, which does not have the preface with the cosmopolite definition. I was just, um, I was just talking about um, the intertwinings of his, of his printings um, are completely ridiculous and, um, uh, no one is as interested in them as I am, so I'm not going to belabor that. But, um, but what I have from this particular publication um, is the subscriber list with hundreds of names, um, and he's publishing this in Lynchburg, Virginia, um, where he did a ton of his formative writing and thinking and preaching. Um, and the subscribers list, and my research assistant is just, uh, we were just talking about this for the first time the other day, so this is all kind of brand new. What he's doing is going through all of those names and finding out anything that we can know about any of those people. It's hundreds of people in Lynchburg and Richmond and surrounding areas. Um, and 
a huge number of them, so many more than I expected, are are by the census definitely slave owners. Um, so um, one thing that this this makes me question is the common assumption, which I admit is mostly my own, um, the common assumption that Dow's type of preaching and his style appealed class-wise um, to the laboring classes, to working to the, to the working class. Um, I don't think that's that's demonstrably not true. Class-wise, many people own many other human beings, right? So um, class-wise, they are not um, where we might have thought they were for being fans of his. Um, secondly, um, uh, it shows how much of a reading he could get for something that he called the rights of man, which is actually, it's taken from Tom Paine, and he basically patches in a lot of um, God talk, which of course Paine was not into, um, uh, to make it to make it all work for him. Um, the type of reading he could get um, among these people, right in this moment in, in Virginia, um, is really mind blowing to me. I did not I did not know that until just just the other day. So um, the fact that he's he's getting that kind of uh, that kind of attention. So in any case. Um, the, 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 the thing that I, where I think the book is going is to talk about the ways in which um, uh, talking about yourself, right, all the time, um, where he's constantly, persistently clarifying who he is, what it actually lets him do um, is, he, because he's retelling it in every different moment, um, become a vessel, he can become a vessel to be all things, right, um, to all people, because he's constantly presenting himself as as just himself, right? But he's always whoever, um, whoever he's, he's talking to. So, um, so that's where I think that book is going. I really appreciate um, the chance to talk about it um, today and to highlight some of the things that the company's uh, collections have done for me. Um, I'm really excited for, for questions um, in the time we have. So I will just stop there and hopefully we can continue talking. That was great. Thank you, Seth. Thank you for sharing your research so early on too. Um, so, I want to invite all of you to use the Q&A uh, feature. I'm going to start with sort of a, a, a open question uh, with the understanding that all of you will pitch in. Um, so we know that Dow, he's not a Calvinist, not a Methodist. Um, oftentimes people talk about evangelicalism in uh, the second great awakening. Is he an evangelical? And if not, why? Oh, that's, that, that's a great question. I am... Um, uh... I tend to shy away from that word um, in the era in which I work. Um, one reason is that in the in the 20th century, evangelical is sort of wrapped up in a lot of political meanings, which don't really translate very well um, into my era. Um, and so I don't want to be misheard in that way. Um, the other thing is that when people do use it for the early 19th century, evangelical tends to um, encompass both the people who are like Dow, I would say, so this kind of like frontier um, uh, camp meeting, um, ostensibly uh, working class kind of preacher, right? Who, who reach a certain kind of audience. Although this is the this is my ongoing question about um, about whether or not that's true for him. Um, it tends to encompass both those people and a set of very patrician, um, mostly Presbyterian, I want to say, um, people in New York and in the culture centers in the Northeast um, who take it on themselves to run sort of the, the nationwide voluntary society. So the, what I want to say is like the founders of the American Bible Society and the people like, and people like Lorenzo Dow are not the same people. You might call them both evangelicals in that they, you know, they, they preach in a certain way or they believe that they believe certain things are important in preaching, um, but they're not the same. They're not the same people. And the relevant distinctions are, are um, 
are, are missed if you if we just use that word for everyone. So was he even evangelical? Sure, yeah, in the sense that he preached a, a strong message of repentance. Um, but I don't think applying that word to him uh, gets very much. So. Yeah, and um, just to dwell for a moment on his politics, because they seem sort of, un um, well, let's say flexible in the sure. best of the way, right? Um, because um, we have this 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 huge um, uh, paper trail of his career. And, um, you know, when you were talking about how he presented um, the issue of slavery, where he's talking about how if he could choose his master, he would, of course, you know, prefer to be an American slave. And then he immediately draws a comparison with English laboring class. I mean, that sounds like what pro-slavery writers were using in the late antebellum period to justify yeah. the failure institution. Yeah. And, and so I'm, I'm just curious to know, like, in the course of spending a lot of time with his writings over time, and we know that he's presenting himself and then representing himself with a very keen ear for his audience. How are his politics shifting over those that 30 year period that you're looking at? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so the he he has this great line in that that Nashville publication, actually, where he where he he draw he square draws out a space for himself where there are people who will sell their vote. And I, I can't ever decide which side he's talking about. There are some people who will sell their vote for a drink and some people who will sell it for a meal or something like that. But there, he, he's drawing a line at like two kinds of like polls um, or two parties. Um, but, but there are real Americans on either side, right? So just politically, he thinks you need to be sort of like um, a ra rational kind of thought is basically what, he, what, he's, what he's thinking of. Um, in terms of slavery itself, um, he uh, he supports gradual abolition, and it, but he, share, he he's definitely very clear about sharing uh, a fear of um, of revolt if there's anything other than gradual abolition. Um, he definitely has no he has no compunction about Indian removal, um, which is another thing that's just a total blind spot for him. He's a huge Jackson booster um, when the time comes, right? Um, later in his life, um, so so yeah, he, he's it's it, and that's a really great point that he's. I mean, right there, he's just echoing or or foregrounding language that is this is going to be used. He's against the slave trade, but that's like an easy one in this era. Even even slave owners, people invested in the slave trade or in slavery as an institution, are against the, the Atlantic trade um, or can be. Um, so. Yeah, he's 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 definitely. It's amazing how much of his thought happens in the South among Southerners. Like, I'm, like in the middle, he's so surprised the first time he encounters um, the first time he encounters uh, a, a true um, uh, extensive slave culture that's very different from where he's coming from in Connecticut. Which, nevertheless, Connecticut had the largest concentration of of the enslaved in New England. But compared to it's when he sails into Savannah Harbor the first time, and he's never seen anything like this. He's never seen so many black bodies, right, in bondage. And it's and he, he notes how much it, it bothers him. But over the course of his career, he that that doesn't surface as much. So Yeah, and then he certainly finds a lot of subscribers. So And then and then he's he's totally willing to 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 spread a message to them and take their money. And you know, he would say he would say he's getting his message out and doing and this is I mean, lots of ministers in this era um, work their way through, work their way to that point where it's like we start off, it's a sort of a stereotype of Methodist and Baptist in the South to say that they start off more radical and then are just um, brought into the culture over time. And that's that's not a stereotype, that's true, but he goes through that too. 
So we have a few questions here that I want to make sure that we get to. Uh, Mark Kimmelsbach brings us back to the question of fame. Um, is there a singular or first moment when he realizes that he's famous, uh, the moment that he made it? And does that change the approach or his view? That is a really great question. Um, there is a moment where um, he realizes that he's, that he's good at this, right? Like he has these great stories when he's first preaching where he can't, he doesn't know what he's doing. And he says, people were judgmental of my, my youth and lack of experience, or he's, he can, he's not getting an audience. People, the Methodist hierarchy tells him, keeps telling him to go home, right? Like you're bad at this, please leave. Um, and then there's this moment where he's like, well, I did it this way. Right. And what he does is he, um, he says, I'm going to preach from, the devil's words right um and so and then like the young people come out to hear him because they want to know what the devil says right and then he preaches from like luke or something where the devil's talking um but he does something he does something different that's like provocative and certainly and you can tell where he's like you know that worked right and it builds in that way um i think it, i think what i would say honestly is that um he always thinks of himself as famous <laughs> like even before it's true that's that's how i would answer that question like I think there's not a moment where he's like not absorbed into his own kind of like deal, right? Where he, where he thinks this is going to work out for him. Um, and so he, uh, that would be the, that would be the, the, the lesson of the movie version, right? Um, where he's, he always believed in himself and, you know, it turned out. Well, it sounds like there's a whole set of practices around that where you need that as a sort of credentialing mechanism, sure. you know? It, yeah. It takes an amazing amount of confidence or, lack of self-awareness would be the other thing, which is like a, like a, like a, a happy amount of, 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 uh, a happy lack of self-awareness to get up in front of a group and just start talking. So. Yeah. And to say that my experience is valuable because of an X, Y, and Z, and that validates whatever I'm putting forward. Yeah. That's good. All right. So I've got a question from an anonymous attendee. Uh, Were there other uh, traveling preachers, which we might consider his competition uh, yeah. And is there any evidence of anyone famous in their own right, a politician or a writer, for example, that may have heard him preach and wrote of it? Uh, that's a great question. So I, 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 shoot, I have better answers for that, for the second part of that. Um, there, he shows up or characters like him do show, do show up in a few literary works of the 19th century. Um, some people have said like the confidence man is sort yeah. of an amalgam of, uh, that involves at least a little dose of Lorenzo Dow. There's some Southern works from the 20th century that mention that mention him, and so he, as, a, as a character, he's he's there. Um, the the first part of that, um, the other preachers, there are there are many other itinerants, um, and there are some that even attain a certain level of notoriety. But there's no, I, I just don't think there's anyone where you like it, it become. It's kind of like going to a concert, like you you like you know he's coming back through town, so you're going to show up to see Lorenzo Dow, but you don't know what's going to happen, and it's going to be entertaining. Um, and I, because no one else travels the way he does, uh, there, there, there aren't a lot of others who are who he would consider his comparison. Also, for many ministers, so ministers who stayed within the Methodist Methodist strictures were not actually supposed to publish their autobiography. Some of them did, and many of them did after they retired or after they um, uh, uh, settled, as Methodists would say. So you're an itinerant, you're traveling around. Eventually, you you know you get married and you settle, um, and some would publish then. So, but in the actual course of the of your career, there aren't a lot of people who are who are publishing uh, about themselves in quite the same way that he is. So. Hmm. We've got another question about his education. Can you mm -hmm. talk all about the education that he has? 
So, and this is a thing that I, I just need to read more on myself, um, how to engage. So he, he's not a great, not a great writer, by which I mean, there aren't that many manuscripts that exist, but there are some, I've, I've, I've seen all of them that are known, which isn't, which I think is 10 or 12. Um, and his, his letter writing is very different from his published work. One thing I would love to know more about is the, is where that work is happening. So are there, if there were records somewhere of a, of an editor, of a publisher or a printer, or even just a typesetter who like fixed his writing, right. That has to have happened. Um, I would love to know that. So he's not a great writer. Um, his way of argumentation is, does, betrays nothing in terms of like, you know, um, classical rhetorical style where you know how to like, you know, organize things to make an argument because that's clearly not true. His, his, his works are all over the place. Um, however, uh, his father sometimes taught school. His brother goes on to be a really well-known um, educator in Connecticut. Um, hmm. uh, he um, is really well-read There's, and, there, and he doesn't make a huge deal of it sometimes except when he wants to, but he'll come out with things that you don't expect. And I'm like, well, how when did you read that? Um, and so he, like, he, he's he's more kind of in the um, in the world of letters than he would he would than he would generally let on or you generally expect. So, um, but um, yeah, but he's definitely um, better educated than a lot of people um, in the, at the time. But um, his 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 method of writing, his way of writing, is really uh, interesting to me because it doesn't it doesn't match the, his publications. Hmm. This, this uh, next question dovetails very nicely from that. So it's from Stephen Peitzman, uh, who asks, was there in the early national period any particular cultivation of or enjoyment of nourishing of the eccentric, the more or less harmless, crazy person? Also, maybe later in the 19th century, there was a serious medical diagnosis called religious mania. Uh, but this person's more interested in um, the first question. Where can you place Dow in the history of the American eccentric? That is a great question. Um, I, that is one of the places I need to do some more thinking because he is, he has this kind of like folk hero presence, right? Um, and that accent, and he calls himself the eccentric pedestrian, right? Like he call, he that's one of the other names he gives himself. Um, he's intentionally eccentric in this way. How that, how that relates to, you know, figures who might be present before and after, I, I, I'm, I'm not equipped to say yet, but I should definitely look into that for, for a way of placing him in, in, um, uh, in that, that, that history. Um, he does uh, take on like folk hero status. There are all these stories that get told and retold throughout the 19th century of like Lorenzo Dow discovers, you know, the robber by doing something like some kind of trickery, like that kind of thing, like a folk, like a folk hero kind of thing. Um, and that's very present. Um, the, the eccentricity and then how that relates to something like mania later. I don't see, what's interesting is that the, the people who tend to say in newspaper editorials and so forth, who say um, that he's that he's crazy also tend to say things like, um, but you know, his message, is, his message is meaningful or his message is important or something like that. Like the message of repentance or whatever. It, it is, we wish he weren't such a clown yeah. But, um, you know, what he's doing is good work, uh, that kind of, like, that happens a lot. And very, it's many, much, many, much fewer, I would say, um, uh, similar people in similar positions say, this guy's crazy, he needs to, he needs to stop talking, right? No, almost no one says that, sort of like, is it a general kind of enjoyment of whatever it is that's going on here? Are, are there records that give us a sense of, like, the texture of his performances? Because I feel like, you know, mm -hmm. 
everything he's published gives us a really good sense of how he wants to present himself at a given moment. Yeah. But then at the same time, we know that he's he's very much tailoring this in an almost extemporaneous way to his audiences. Yeah. I was curious to know, have you looked at anything or have you found anything that sort of um, uh, reveals a little bit of that reception history? Yeah, that's the, so I have a whole file of these. Um, so the, the the last time Dow had a biography, I meant to mention this um, at the beginning. The last time Dow had a biography was uh, 1928. Um, and it's uh, kind of a romantic, it was part of a series called... Um, uh, crazy, like basically like crazy Americans, uh, like Johnny Appleseed is in there, like eccentrics. Um, mm-hmm. So that, that, that was a thing in the 20s at least. Um, but that is by uh, a writer from Connecticut named uh, Charles Coleman Sellers. Um, mm-hmm. Not the Charles Sellers, who's like the economic historian, the different, different um, uh, But that book had, because he was, I don't know, I don't know how he did, I don't know, actually, I'll just be honest, as a, as a modern a contemporary historian, I have no idea if people did research before the internet anyway. I don't know how he found all these, but he mentions a ton of different people in, in their own memoirs or whatever, noting when they saw Lorenzo Dow and how he preached. Um, he didn't have any footnotes because it was not that kind of book. So I've like traced those back. And plus I have a, a, probably the same number and, and a few more that I found on my own. And that's just a matter of like stumbling across them in different ways. Um, and, but uh, if, if anyone out there has a, has a, so I, the other thing I was going to say was that it's entirely likely if you have ancestors, you know, who were here in the 19th century, you might've had a Lorenzo Dow in your, in your, your, uh, your family tree. Um, if anyone has a particularly manuscript ones where it's like, Oh, I, my, my saw Lorenzo Dow preach. Like that would be a great thing to have. Um, what I get from those, the ones I do have, um, are those same kinds of responses, right? And I do have a few places where I can see where he was, he, um, he's preaching on something that shows up in his, in his writings. Right. So he's tries, I think what he does is he tries out things in sermons and then he writes them down um, basically as they are um, for, for publication. So that's as close as I can get to those. And that's, that's frustrating and they're very hard to find, um, but I have some. And still harder now that so many institutions are physically close. Now, okay. <laughs> so the last slide I was going to show, I did, and I didn't, I, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't get to it, but um, the last slide I was going to show was a note I made to myself on on one of those texts I showed from the library company that says, um, you need to see this again, stupid, <laughs> because the, the PDF, I, I, I leave notes like that to myself. Yeah. Um, the PDF shows that there's, there's, there are markings on it and I have not, I didn't notice that, right? So there's a, there's a scans available, but this is why it's so meaningful to be in the reading room is that I could look at those pencil marks and I have not done that. And now I can't temporarily. So this is a, after Labor Day, we are After. reopening to a limited number of researchers. Oh, is that right? I had not actually, I had not noticed that. Yeah. Awesome. That's yeah. fantastic. And our, and our lovely neighbor, the Historical Society of Pennsylvania, will also be reopening in a very limited capacity. So okay. uh, well, that is my pitch to anyone who's interested in great. doing research. Great. Seth, this is wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing Thanks your work. So much. Thanks. And uh, next week, for all of you, uh, stick around, come back, same time, same place. Samantha Schneider and uh, Kayla Anthony will be talking about Elizabeth Powell and the founding of the Republic. So we're staying in the same period. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.